Hello everyone, it's February 16th, 2021, and so we begin our coverage of the invasion of Mars. Let's hope the red planet never returns the favor. TN11 and Hope have already arrived. Next up is Perseverance and Ingenuity. The next few weeks are going to be interesting, so let's get to it and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 297 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. Uh, anything to talk about? I did not prepare a topic. Well, I mean, this this might be interesting to the nerds in the audience, but uh, I finally started uh, using IPython this week, and it's it's pretty cool. Yep. I don't know what that is, but I'm assuming it's Python for Macs <laughs> or whatever. <I> don't know. <laughs> no, 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 no. The I is for interactive. So, yeah. So I, I'm using an IPython server called Jupyter, which is like the, the biggest one. Um, and so what, what's cool is that you, instead of writing one program that, you know, you execute with a single command, um, you write chunks of code called cells and you can execute them one at a time or, you know, in, in different, uh, in different orders. And they, they basically act as separate, separate modules almost. But, uh, the re the reason I'm using it is because my partner was doing some data analysis that, you know, was really labor intensive to do in Excel. And so all, you know, all week I'd been just spouting out, uh, Excel functions, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> Hey, uh, how, how do you do this? Oh, that's, you know, uh, that's VLOOKUP. Oh, that's if error, you know, um, that, oh, that's count if that's what, that's what you want. Um, and, uh, I was like, eh, this this is really labor intensive. Let's just write some Python code. So I I built a Jupyter notebook to to do the work. But I felt like a real scientist um, using hmm. a Jupyter notebook with pandas. And like, I don't know, <laughs> I'm I'm not it's, a it's legit. <laughs> using yeah, a Jupyter I'm, I'm, notebook with pandas. What a yeah, statement! Like, so pandas is a uh, a data library for using multiple like one to many dimension arrays hmm. of data. So like a like a 1D series or a 2D spreadsheet or a 3D spreadsheet with tabs, you know, you can, that kind of thing. And so I, I I'm basically using it to import an Excel spreadsheet. I'm not really, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like Excel for Python, but like you know, it's it, I mean, it's like th this is what what real data scientists use um, a lot of time, and <laughs> it's just like mm. I'm gonna dip my toe in and then run away. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna write some hacky code that will uh, hopefully not break. So I guess we're gonna talk about Mars. So Mars Hope and TN1 have they have arrived on the red planet, and there's more to come. So this is like gonna be an interesting couple of weeks. So this is the first of it, right? So we have Mars Hope and TN1. Okay, and we have video of TN1. I have not watched it, so I actually don't know what to say. Oh, on it's good. I totally have missed this. It's really, it's it's really cool. So um, the the video is um, sped up something like thirty times, I think, is what I saw our Discord decide on. And um, so a as Tianwen One is uh, flying through its very first para-Aryan, you know, it's burning the whole time. Uh, it started its burn, uh, then passed behind the planet, and then emerged out the other side. And I don't know, it's it's annoying because um, CNSA has not really been very open uh, about what their plans are, but it was pretty cool to see all of the analysis that people were having to do because of that. But yeah, as it's as it's passing through this first periary and it was capturing uh, images every 30 seconds or whatever, and they assemble it into a video. And it, it's funny because uh, Mars looks white. Um, and that's just because, you know, it's not a, it's not a beauty shot. It's just, you know, this raw camera footage with, um, poor, uh, image calibration and, uh, you know, it's all washed out. So it also looks like, I swear I'm looking at what well, looks like a little thin bit of atmosphere that I can. Yes, absolutely. Isn't that fantastic? You can see yeah. a couple of craters and you can see the atmosphere. And, and I, I love camera shots like this where you can see part of the spacecraft. It, it gives you <laughs> such a visceral understanding. Well, anyway, so, uh, yeah, Tianwen, uh, successfully captured into orbit. And before we talk about that, I wanted to point out this is, uh, China's second mission to Mars. I think I've seen a lot of people talking about it as their first mission it's their first solo mission we've mentioned this before but they uh, partnered with roscosmos um, and had hardware on phobos grant they had an orbiter uh, which obviously uh, did not uh, make it into operation 
So anyway, uh, they've, they've now captured into uh, an eccentric and equatorial orbit. I, I don't know if this is going to happen on their first uh, Applearian or not, uh, but they're going to move from this equatorial orbit to a 96.9 degree polar orbit. And they will do that um, inclination change before they start lowering their orbit. Mars Express also uh, did it this way. It it captured into an equatorial orbit and then uh, did an inclination change. But that was because they were dropping off uh, Beagle 2 before before they uh, changed their their orbital plane. Um, and that's not the plan with, with Tianwen. So I don't know why they're doing this. Um, I, I saw a suggestion on the NASA spaceflight forum. Somebody was saying, well, maybe it's safer to do it this way. Um, because if you, um, do an incomplete burn or, or you're not able to, you know, start up your burn this way, you don't, um, get ejected out into a crate. You know, you don't have as much of an inclination, um, in your resulting heliocentric orbit. Uh, and maybe uh, maybe they can pick this initial orbit in such a way that uh, it gives them the best chance to give it a second try uh, mm-hmm. down the line, which which seems uh, reasonable. But who knows? Um, so they're going to uh, do this inclination change. The diagrams that they've put out show it on the first Apoarian, but I, I don't know if that's going to be the case necessarily. It seems it seems reasonable. Do you know what that distance is at the Apoarian? So they're going to capture into a 400 by 180,000 kilometer orbit. Um, that's, a, that's a period of 11 days. And then um, once they do their inclination change, um, they're actually going to be moving to three different orbits. And I don't know if they're going to do each of these orbital uh, lowering maneuvers all at once, uh, or if instead they will be having some intermediate orbits as they're taking their time. Uh, but the three like named orbits that they have, uh, the first one is their reconnaissance orbit. Um, that's 265 by 60,000 kilometers. Um, so you notice that the uh, periarian gets lowered as well as the apoarian it looks like their capture was pretty high up um so that's a that's a two-day uh period orbit and the reconnaissance orbit is uh, presumably going to be doing a lot of imaging but that's also the orbit that they're going to be um, releasing the lander and rover from then after that they will move into two different science orbits the first one is called the scientific orbit and that's 400 by 15,000 kilometers um, and then their final scientific orbit is 256 by 12,000 kilometers so it, it seems like they're going to be raising and lowering uh, their Apoarian a little bit. Um, that's assuming that these numbers are correct and that there wasn't a, a little typo. As far as I understand, um, if I remember correctly, that you you can save on fuel pretty pretty darn well if you uh, do your uh, lowering or raising maneuver at the same time you do an inclination change, um, rather than doing that. Yes. Yes, that's that's always correct. Um, yeah. However, their initial orbit after their capture orbit, their their high altitude uh, polar orbit, has a different periarian than the reconnaissance orbit. That's not true. I don't know what their periarian will be at that point, but we can assume that it'll be the same as the reconnaissance orbit. And then you would expect. Uh, moving from the reconnaissance to the scientific to the final scientific orbits to all share the same periarian, but they don't. Um, it goes 265, or they capture at 400, then they go to 265, then they go back up to 400, and then they go down to 265 again. I'm so, guessing that's I, a typo, to be honest. I agree. That seems <laughs> like a typo. Um, so, so we'll see. Um, so af- after they've, uh, Right. After they've uh, gone into the reconnaissance orbit, they will um, detach the lander and they'll go into these two different science orbits. Um, We don't know when the landing is going to take place before the launch. um, China said they were targeting a landing on April 23rd. Um, But right now they are citing May to June. And uh, I think there was an a, a brief interview with somebody who said they wanted to wait a hundred days uh, before they um, before they did that. So uh, that that would line up with May, the the beginning of that May June kind of window. 
I'm sure that Dennis, you remembered this, but I did not remember this. They're going to be landing in Utopia Planitia and presumably mm. starting uh, construction on the shipyards uh, at Utopia Planitia. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I, have okay. make, was... <laughs> I, I have to make a, a Star Trek reference whenever I see yeah. Utopia Planitia. <laughs> um, but yeah, they, they are actually landing at Utopia Planitia. And that, that's my update for Tianwen 1. Did you guys have anything that you wanted to mention? I just hope it all goes well. Yeah, totally. Right? Super ambitious for its first, you know, solo mission that they got the yeah. whole kit and caboodle, right? Orbiter, lander, rover. Yeah. I mean, it's it's been such a great progression that we've been seeing um, from CNSA. You know, just it seems very well thought out. There haven't been a lot of failures. You know, it's just like, boom, boom, boom. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. We're going to do this. And fairly... uh you know, hot on the heels of their yeah awesome sample uh-huh. return uh, mm-hmm. uh, lunar mission. Yeah, exactly. They they really have have got a pace going here. They they're clearly going mm-hmm. places. So then uh, uh, Mars Hope uh, also arrived at Mars, and I, I have less to talk about here. Um, but I wanted to point out that they um, sent back a, a first image that is. Unlike Tianwen 1, which sent back this washed out image that, you know, still has this beautiful view of the atmosphere and it's, you know, they're capturing this as they, or they're, they're capturing the image as they're capturing into orbit. Mars Hope, in contrast, sent back this absolutely beautiful, refined, high altitude image, um, with the, uh, uh, the Terminator, just with like this barely visible arc. It's like mm. almost dead center, but it's just off center a little bit. So it arcs just a little bit. And it's just this gorgeous color image of, uh, of Mars. And it's the Tharsis, and they're imaging the Tharsis bulge, which is mm-hmm. like, that's where all the exciting action's happening. You can see Olympus Mons. You can see the three yep. other large Tharsis volcanoes. Yep. And then Valus Marinaris is off to the right. It looks a lot like what my wallpaper is on my desktop, <laughs> except that the one that I have is it actually has like Valus Marinaris dead center so and then you have the volcanoes off to the left so this is mm-hmm. kind of you know a little bit rotated but yeah it looks very similar to that it's, it's like the same i guess like the same coloring so i you know mm. whatever they used to render that mm. looks it looks very very similar so nice image i have to say that suggests to me that they're both fairly true color mm-hmm. renditions right, right? yeah if they, if they wind up matching yeah really nice uh good good job uae we're we're all proud of you <laughs> <laughs> you produced a very beautiful image. We're looking forward to more science. But just just because I talked about orbital parameters so much for Tianwen One, uh, they captured uh, Hope captured into a very high orbit at 25 degrees, um, and they will be uh, moving to a lower science orbit over the next few months, and you know just progressively burning down. But uh, we'll we'll, uh, we'll look forward to seeing seeing what science. They're uh, they're going to return. Uh, Mars yeah, Hope was is such a, a fantastic program, right? Because they partnered with what is it, the University of Colorado, and UAE is like, okay, we want to not attract scientists to our country. We want we want to turn our citizens into scientists. We want to increase the the education of our population. So to do that, we need to partner with another country. And to partner with another country, we need to do something interesting. And hey, it, you know, it, it's just like, uh, students who go to college and do like a really cool first year project or something, you know, like where like they have all these different goals that all align to let them do something really cool and, you know, publish a paper or whatever. Uh, and it's, it's just like, yeah, th- this was so cool. Like it's good on a humanitarian aspect. It's good on a science aspect and it's good on like an aesthetic. Let's look at pretty pictures of Mars aspect. It's, it's just great. <laughs> Stye in the, in the chat says a majority, uh, the, the team is majority female. Uh, which is very, very cool mm-hmm. for any mission, but particularly a, a country from the Middle East. It's really, really cool. So next up would be Perseverance. Well, that's what's coming up. And yeah, um, we'll be talking about that on the next episode because obviously it's going to be landing just a couple of days, a couple of days after we record this. So, but I guess we can talk a little bit about um, what to expect. So kind of similar to the way that Curiosity, we're looking at the same kind of, you know, entry, descent, and landing. Yeah, very, very similar. I mean, yeah. uh, Perseverance has got, uh, what do they call them? Not, spare parts is unfair. There, there's a <laughs> uh, backup articles. There, there, there's a real word for it, and I can't remember. But uh, but it's got spare parts from uh, from Curiosity um, that it's used. So, I mean, it's it's incredibly similar 
Flight spares. Ah. Thank you, Mike. Flight spares uh, from Curiosity. So yeah, I mean, it's it's not only very similar to it. It, it has some things that are identical uh, to, to Curiosity. And actually, uh, when I wrote up some, some facts here and I was mainly just focusing on the differences because that's, that's kind of the, the more interesting way to approach it. Um, so a, a quick overview of the EDL, um, and entry, descent and landing. Um, the cruise stage will separate 10 minutes before entry. Uh, the shoots will open four minutes after entry. Uh, so like we, uh, mentioned in our interview with, uh, Panos Teotras, um, a few weeks ago, um, there is a terrain relative nav system, uh, that will be active during EDL. Um, uh, and that's, that's a, the, the biggest difference in terms of the landing. That's the biggest difference, uh, from curiosity. And, and there are two main things that the, uh, TRNS will be doing that I, I think is very, very cool. So during the final, like during the final landing, when they're actually lowering, um, perseverance down from the sky crane, the, TRNS will be doing hazard avoidance, right? Uh, taking images, looking for rocks and, and uh, uneven terrain and, and being able to avoid it. Um, they may or may not wind up doing a, a diversion to, to move to a new landing target, but it, it would be really cool if they did. I mean, that, that'd be, uh, that'd be very satisfying to see that system kick in and, and do some, uh, do some work. But what's really fantastic is that that's not, the first time the TRNS will be acting on the system. Uh, it actually is going to be controlling the precise timing of the parachute deployment, which means that if they see something interesting, uh, they can uh, aim towards it, right? So at, at the very end, they'll be avoiding bad things, but earlier on, they will be aiming towards good things. Mm. Um, and just, just the whole idea of a computer... Um, being able to make decisions on interesting science targets on the way in it is unbelievable. And, you know, it's something that curiosity has been doing for a while. Um, they, they have a program that, um, can during their, the drives during the day, it can pick targets of opportunity to take photos of as they're driving and then upload photos. So does it have a set prioritized list of where it wants to land specifically, you know, because it probably already knows pretty well what the landing ellipse will be, right? So it yes. just has to determine whatever inside of that. It's fine tuning. It We're talking about saving a couple of days of driving, mm -hmm. not, you know, moving to a different side of the planet, you know, like uh, as yeah, an extreme well, example. <laughs> yeah, as, as an extreme example. Robot engineer in the chat asks, have they done any flight tests of the software, like using it to land a multi-rotor? It's a great question. I, I, I'm sure that they have done a lot of computer modeling. I don't know if they've actually done any physical test beds. That'd be really interesting. Yeah, Just know. to make sure they purge their cosine calculations of negative results. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. We'll, we'll find out. Uh, or uh, hopefully we'll be able to find out. I'll, I'll keep it in mind and see if we can, um, talk about it during uh during next week's show how about that and and, and i think a, a useful bit of context to point out is right this is going to jezero crater right which is essentially a dried river delta and so it's not gonna it's not the more flat places that we typically have been landing uh, mm -hmm. our mars missions too and so that's kind of why this is so important i guess like this is a mission that could only be done with this this kind of navigation software because it's going to have to make those kinds of decisions on the fly although i guess the previous I can't remember quite how Curiosity landed. I mean, like, obviously there was a camera on board, but I don't know exactly what purpose that served. I don't remember if it was maybe just they, for, They you know, had range. engineering cameras to take mm -hmm. photos as it happened, but there wasn't any, um, yeah. any avoidance or anything. And they just, they picked a big flat spot and said, let's land there. And, and of course we got to mention, right? This is, it's going to sky crane itself down <laughs> to the surface. So, yep. <laughs> I mean, that's just. So cool. <laughs> yeah, I'm hoping for some cool footage of that. I would mm -hmm. like to see just to watch that happen. Yeah. So cool. So, you know, there, there are a number of differences between Perseverance and Curiosity. Um, different instruments, um, you know, notably sample return can capsules, canisters. Um, but I think one of the things that everybody is super excited about is the Ingenuity helicopter. So I have been very fascinated by what ingenuity is actually going to look like as it is deployed, as it 
actually flies like you know it's just just saying okay it's a cube hanging underneath two coaxial blades is is not very enlightening so it actually turns out that they had looked at a number of different um, stowage positions and deployment strategies and the one that seems to make the most sense to me was putting it on the end of the robotic arm right um if if you have a robotic arm and a very delicate helicopter that needs to land on its feet. Why not just put it on, you know, give it some sort of end effector latching mechanism and just use the arm. But they uh, decided to go with a, a mounting location on, on the belly of the Rover. Yeah. So uh robot engineer in the chat says it increases the consequences of certain failure modes. Yes. <laughs> Systems engineers probably had a fit. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and even now, the the stowage location and deployment um, location now just about drove uh, some folks nuts. I was reading a, a couple of quotes from an interview and they're like, yeah, this was really tough. So anyway, um, being mounted on the on the belly of the rover, the underside of the rover, it has 26 inches or 67 centimeters of clearance to the ground. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's not a lot <laughs> and and that's that's ideal right that's on flat terrain if if you you know have a, a rock or if you're on a slope yeah that's that's different uh so so the thing gets uh mounted on the belly and then they put it, this um composite debris shield uh to cover it and that debris shield will get jettisoned before landing actually you know i'm not sure about that they might land jettison and then drive away but i i believe it gets jettisoned during landing and then the the helicopter itself will unlatch and fold down so it's on this this swing arm uh that is holding uh two pairs of legs um sort of up towards the top of the rotors and the, the whole thing will rotate down um, with the axis of rotation being just above the top of the rotors. Um, so, you know, sort of this hinge mechanism that swings the legs out and down. And what's interesting is that it's got four pairs of legs um, sticking out of the bottom of the helicopter. And two of those pairs of legs are folded up. Um, and those are the legs that would be facing the ground on landing. Um, the other two are not folded. They actually protrude into the body of the rover. And so it'll swing down, uh, deploy the two uh, folded legs, and then drop it down to the surface. And that drop is going to be about five inches, depending on the terrain. And so they'll drop it, and then Perseverance will drive away from the, uh, drive away from the helicopter. And uh, at that point, it'll begin its 30 sole primary mission. I, I really hope that we get a, a long extended mission. I I don't think that there's much of a, a reason to, because this thing is going to be really like personnel intensive, I'm assuming, you know, just personnel intensive to operate. Uh, and it doesn't have that much of a return potential. Um, it doesn't really have any instruments on board other than cameras. So hopefully it proves invaluable as a scout and we get to see it fly over and over. But um, I don't know. What what do you guys think? What are you looking forward to? Well, I mean, I'm looking forward to the images more than anything, because like you said, there's not a whole lot of scientific instrumentation on board the thing. So and it is, I guess, you know, primarily just a little scouting device. Um, but the cool thing that we get to enjoy from that is just to see those images but i don't really know what they'll quite look like um but i just love seeing the surface of mars especially from you know the air i'm actually more looking forward to uh just seeing uh perseverance imaging (laughs) ingenuity i just want to see it in context sitting on the oh that's true yeah Yeah. you know and yeah and then i guess longer term right the idea is that you know sojourner uh was almost more of a tech demo, a scout that kind of paved the way for, you know, the Mars uh, exploration rovers and the Mars Science Laboratory and now Perseverance. Um, and so similarly, right, this is just step one. And then we're going to have, you know, more scientific uh, laden helicopters on Mars in the mm-hmm. future. And so, yeah, this this really isn't even a scout. 
you know, like it's, mm -hmm. it's a tech demonstration. Mm -hmm. Hopefully they'll be exactly. able to use it like that. But so do you think in the future, and I guess, uh, I don't remember if we've discussed it, if there's any future missions that are planned that they'll be landing a much larger helicopter, um, like significantly to, you know, fly around on Mars. I don't know what the practicality of that would be. I know, I know that we talked about it on what Titan, I believe, because that's a much more yeah. suitable yeah, place dragonfly. to put something like that. Yeah. That thing's like nine feet. It's just that on Mars, just like given the atmosphere, I don't mm -hmm. know how practical it would, it would be to put something large. You would have to have a much larger yeah. wingspan. Well, if you if you want to put a large flyer on Mars, it's much better to go with a fixed wing aircraft that can, you know, do uh, parasoaring, uh, use the the thermals to stay aloft rather than uh, the very energy intensive rotary wing vehicle. But would something like that need a little bit of a like a little bit of a runway? Uh, d d totally depends. Um, the theories or the the like ideas that I've seen that seem really cool is just a parasailer, a paraglider that never lands. Um, it, mm -hmm. it enters the atmosphere and just deploys its wings and, and starts flying. That and, you know, you, you really mm -hmm. have to use uh, a very intelligent, you know, flight control to be able to fly at all, but to be able to stay aloft and, and it's, it's doable. Like we, we know how to do this. But that that seems that seems like the best strategy if you need something big. Um, but you know that that kind of uh, of mission is really for like intensive surface imaging. Mm -hmm. You know when you need to image a lot of the surface from the air. Um, that that's when you'd want to do that. I don't know. I, I mean, I can imagine you know in the future just you know with future landers and rovers having you know helicopters that are you know, maybe just twice the size of Ingenuity, you know what I mean? And just now actually with uh, more scientific instruments on board, you know what I mean? Like, you don't have to have one of these, you know, massive, you know, aerial craft to be able to do, you know, good science uh, from the air, I don't think. And so, but I, I do love the idea that Stai mentioned in the chat about uh, possibly if you had a bigger fixed wing uh, craft that you could drop it off during the descent mm -hmm. to get it going. Yep. That, that's what I mean by never landing, like not even landing mm -hmm. once. Truly airborne aircraft. And um, and also, uh, if you uh, want to go back and listen to uh, episode 280, uh, where we did a downlink with Ella Atkins, and it was a wonderful interview where, you know, she talked a lot about her, you know, uh, research and expertise in autonomous robotics. Um, this is our second uh, interview with uh, Dr. Atkins, actually. And uh, we did definitely touch on, while she's not a part of the, you know, Ingenuity team at all, um, but she did definitely talk about, you know, some of the things that they would need to be able to uh, handle uh, to be able to fly this mission successfully. And so um, she even gave, if I remember correctly, some odds of uh, success. And so if you want to hear what those numbers are, go again, check out episode 280. <laughs> All right, let's now do four short and sweets. Some of them actually are rather short, other ones not so much. So what's the first one, Ben? All right, first up, DARPA looks into off-Earth manufacturing. DARPA's announced a new endeavor, the Novel Orbital and Moon Manufacturing Materials and Mass Efficient Design Program, or NOMAD, where the A is a four. I, I think that's brilliant, by the way. I don't know. I like that. <laughs> I actually like it. The goal of this program is to explore technology that enables large-scale, off-Earth manufacturing of structures with an emphasis on mass efficiency that can only be achieved off-Earth. The program will be split into three 18-month phases, with the final phase aiming to provide flight-ready solutions. However, in order to realize this goal, the program necessitates regular and rapid launches with frequent visits to the moon. DARPA will be hosting a webinar on February 26th with further information for potential commercial partners. Next up, Turkey aims for 2023 lunar landing. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan announced that the country's national space program aims to land on the moon in 2023. The mission will involve international cooperation, and while Erdogan didn't elaborate on that further, he has recently met with Elon Musk, whose SpaceX helped launch TurkSat 5A into orbit last month. The lunar mission was announced along with other national goals, including building a spaceport and sending a Turkish citizen to a scientific mission in space. Next up, the Vulcan Pathfinder arrives. The Pathfinder for ULA's newest rocket, Vulcan, arrived at Cape Canaveral Space Force Station on Saturday by sea. This test article, called the PTT, or Pathfinder Tanking Test Booster, will be used for full cryogenic tanking in order to test its flight pressure integrity. 
and it will also serve to test ground support equipment and launch integration hardware. The booster's two Metalox BE-4 engines were previously used in static fire tests and are no longer flight capable, though according to ULA CEO Tori Bruno, the booster itself is scheduled to be launched next year with flight-ready engines. And fourthly, uh, doors open at Blue Origin's New Glenn factory. Uh, hat tip to Andrew Zandanowitz uh, for emailing this one in. Details are non-existent, but we couldn't not mention that Stephen Smith posted a photo on Twitter of what appears to be a New Glenn prototype or test article hiding behind large bay doors at a Blue Origin facility as a volumetric frame or mandrel is being moved out through the open doors. Uh, there's no telling if this is a prelude to upcoming tests, but we definitely hope so. I hope so, yeah. <laughs> I'm really eager to see something come of that, yeah. Very cool. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and correction burns, and we have uh, two elaborations by a frequent poster, I guess, or a frequent emailer to the show. Two, two frequent emailers, yeah. So, um, yeah, Andy pointed out that we did not talk about the rough ending uh, that or the, the rough uh, SN9 landing. Uh, we talked about a bunch of other stuff, and, and we didn't uh, we didn't really talk about the uh, the debris that appears to have. Uh, come out of the vehicle and so it it, it was nice to see him kind of uh, dig through that a little bit I thought we mentioned it briefly but yeah I'm pretty sure that we mentioned that right we didn't analyze the boom in the way that we yeah. often analyze the boom I guess. yeah okay. <laughs> yeah okay so so let me uh, let me just read uh, the last paragraph from his email uh, slow the playback down to uh, 0.25x and look at the six minute 20 second mark and you will see one raptor backfire for lack of a better term and you'll see a piece of debris expelled from the vehicle keep watching as sn9 tries to arrest the over pivot and return to vertical and again at about six minutes and 23 seconds you'll see another larger piece of debris expelled by the vehicle before it hits the ground you can see some flames up in the engine bay and around one of the engine mounts at that time as well which we we did mention so yeah, uh, we we didn't talk about the debris. <laughs> it's something that's not uncommon during you know a lot of tests. In fact, I think it might have happened during the DSN eight. Um, but there is just I don't know if it's insulation or something, but um, there is generally some debris which comes off, but it doesn't seem to be a big deal. And I don't know if that's even related to what went wrong. I'm pretty sure that it's not actually. I'm just gonna go ahead and say that I don't think that it caused an engine failure. There's like paneling and covers on the inside that seem to yeah catch fire on on ascent. Right, that's what we we talked about on SN eight. We we saw it ignite on ascent. It's kind of like the first event you saw, right, on the SNI SN8 flight. Before everybody freaked out about watching the engines shut off one at a time, <laughs> we saw it would look like might have, you know piece of insulation uh, catching fire or something. Yeah, I just didn't think much of it, which is maybe why we didn't talk much about it. But I mean, you know, that's my thought. Yeah, I I don't know. It, it definitely it, it looks flappy, like yeah, like uh, insulation or covering or something. But I don't know. I mean, it it. Don't, don't look good. <laughs> Robot engineer uh, is speculating the same thing I was thinking that had to do with thermal ma management and yeah, probably yeah. foil the guard against radiative heating. Okay. And then um, Aspen Erkdell also wrote in. Thank you, Aspen. Um, and uh, so this, this email is more talking about the FAA. So to lump that in, uh, I wanted to read another paragraph uh, from Andy's email and then I'll move on to, to Aspen's email. So Andy says uh, about the risk waiver SpaceX was seeking any sufficiently zoomed out view of the SpaceX facilities at Boca Chica will provide so, uh, will will provide the answer that's confidence mm -hmm. if uh, SpaceX lost control of Starship near the end of its flight where self-destruct wouldn't be helpful and a Starship came down and crashed on top of the tank farm I imagine that would be a large enough blast or pressure wave and sufficient shrapnel produce to produce the kind of risk or damage that they were seeking a waiver for yeah, but but the the thing is, like, they knew that that tank farm was going to be right next to the landing pad, so that that still doesn't convince me that that's what 
the modification was, right? So then uh, moving on to, to Espen's email, and I'll just read this verbatim as well, I think. Some congressional staffers were briefed yesterday. This was uh, earlier in the week, obviously. Uh, were briefed yesterday on the SpaceX FAA launch license violation. They were told there was a miscommunication on modeling how far any shockwave would travel from a blast and the kind of damage it would cause, like broken windows. And so um, given the communication problem, FAA investigated not only the S8 hard landing, but also did a comprehensive review of the company's safety culture, operational decision-making, and process discipline. The investigation was done quickly, and changes were incorporated for SN9. And then, then sort of like the conclusion paragraph here is FAA did have an inspector there for SN8. SpaceX was working faster, so they had met the overall risk criteria. The inspector said conditions had not yet been met, but somehow that message didn't get to the launch console. So, like, I don't know anything about this sort of process. But something seems off here. The idea that there are two stacking miscommunications that led to this launch violation, that the inspector said no, there were SpaceX employees who received that no message and then weren't able to pass it on uh, to other SpaceX employees fast enough. And the idea that SpaceX miscommunicate had a miscommunication with FAA about um, modeling shockwave damage. Like, I don't know, man, like, you know, that's a lot of coincidences all in one place. And I'm not, I'm not saying that this definitely means that there's a conspiracy and that SpaceX is being malicious. I mean, far from it. Um, I don't, I don't think SpaceX was being necessarily malicious. Uh, I think they were trying to do what they wanted to do. And I think their priorities lay in getting this work done quickly. And that's, you know, kind of the way that capitalism is set up, right? Like, go, go, go do it. And yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's just the way that SpaceX chose its priorities. Even if, even if these were genuine miscommunications, it still tells you that their priorities were set up in such a way to, to facilitate this to some extent. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I'm just truly speculating here, but that's kind of the way it seems to me. Uh, what, what do you, what do you guys think? I guess kind of the same thing. Although I, I don't want to say that SpaceX is malicious, but to me, it seems a little bit more plausible that maybe, you know, there was, I don't know, like maybe some willful ignorance, if that makes sense, or, you know, mm -hmm. like maybe somebody wasn't really making sure to, you know, pass these or to make sure that this communication was made. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's, it's that kind of thing where like you have a goal in mind and that's your primary objective. And so other stuff kind of takes, you know, a secondary role. And then before you know it, you've done something wrong that you, you didn't mean to, but it kind of just happened. But then again, you weren't really trying to make sure that you, you know, like followed the process correctly. I don't know. That's just kind of the way it seems to me, but that's just an impression. I have no idea myself. And uh, I should point out that what I was reading wasn't coming from Espen. It was coming from uh, Christian Davenport, a reporter for the Washington Post. Um, and I totally, I had not seen these tweets. And so it's fantastic to uh, have an extra pair of eyes out there handing some information back. Yeah. So what Espen said was, um, it's still bad that this kind of communication failure is possible, but intent is a large factor in how serious this is, at least in my opinion. And yeah, I, I agree. I just, I don't know where, I, I don't know where we sit, I guess. All right. Well, um, that is, uh, our continued <laughs> coverage of SN9. Uh, ex expect it to continue as, as we learn more, but I, I think we've, uh, we've, learned quite a bit um so yeah. far um but yeah thank you uh, andy and Aspen for writing in we we really do appreciate it yep and uh with that we'll move on to this week in spaceflight history and we have just one winner so i guess that was a really difficult clue the winner is the greek and the clue was potato in the tailpipe which i think is a great clue and it is. also a challenging one yeah. and and the greek also had a wonderful answer because his tweet included rather than a potato in the tailpipe but the he included the infamous uh, banana in a tailpipe from Beverly Hills Cop. Uh, and the event was uh, the 22nd of February, uh, 1990, and it was the launch of the Ariane 4 uh, Flight 36, or V-36. And so I'll talk a little bit about that. And so uh, this, uh, strap yourself in, because this is quite a ride, <laughs> this <laughs> this. Uh, this is, this is an amazing story. And I think, I, I mean, I had heard it referenced before, but I had never uh, heard about the details of it. And so um, we'll have, uh, you know, a uh, in the show notes, uh, 
thespacereview.com has an amazing article uh, that details it um, uh, with the title, The Cloth of Doom. Um, and it's uh, by Francis Castanos, which is just, uh, I recommend just reading that himself because he, he writes it in a very engaging kind of narrative style. Uh, and it, it's just very fun to read. So uh, first, the run-up, okay? This is an event in February 1990, but the previous October, so October 17th in 1989, there was an earthquake in California that set along this unfortunate series of events. And this uh, earthquake damaged the uh, Ford satellite facility in Palo Alto. Now, that's, you know, not motors, but uh, Ford <laughs> uh, aerospace, uh, which uh, ultimately evolved into Space Systems Laurel, which now I believe exists under Maxar. And so um, they, you know, had been building this uh, Superbird B. Uh, Ford Aerospace was originally owned by the Ford Motor Company, though, wasn't it? Was it? Oh, that's cool. I didn't know that. Yeah. It was a division of Ford, Motor, Ford Motors. No kidding. I thought it was just a, a, a name. Thank you, Ben. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's wild. Yep. I guess that was kind of a thing, too, those conglomerates. I mean, you know, my old man worked for uh, General Motors, but he worked for like the financial, like they had their own bank and financing wing. You know what I mean? And it's just like, yeah. they really did go into a well, lot of it, stuff. In particular for space, like when when the space era started, like it, it was such a fast um, transition to a completely new set of technology. And, and we just didn't have companies that, you know, were already doing that kind of thing. Mm. And so pretty much everybody in, in heavy industry, you know, was called upon to send us to the moon. So, yeah, yeah you know. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, I keep that, keep that me learning that in there and that's fine. <laughs> so, okay. So, so, right. So Ford, uh, aerospace, um, is working on, um, you know, building the Superbird B, uh, which is a communication satellite that, um, you know, was ordered by uh, a, a Japanese company. This earthquake, you know, uh, damaged uh, Superbird B a bit, uh, which was going to essentially delay its launch and uh, ultimately put uh, Ariane flights uh, 35 and 36 into conflict. And so they basically, in order to kind of, you know, keep to a better schedule, uh, they uh, swapped uh, the payloads between those flights as well as the boosters between those flights. So there was a spot two that was going to, I guess, fly on uh, flight 36, but it wound up getting bumped up to flight 35. And similarly, some boosters from 36 were brought up to 35 as well. And so um, about those uh, boosters, right? So this is an Ariane 4. Um, and so in a, uh, uh, the, uh, SEP plant, which is a, uh, you know, a, a French, uh, you know, company that was, you know, actually building, you know, uh, the first stage in, uh, Le Moreau, the, basically, uh, the, the name of the first stage on Ariane 4 is a, uh, L220 and it was being completed. And this, uh, one's, uh, serial number is L407. So I'm going to be talking about that L407 and another, um, first stage called L408. Those will be important in this uh, madness that happens. The the first stage uh, consists of four Viking engines. Okay, at this time, so this is, again, this is the the fall before the February launch. Um, a boiler maker was working on a uh, on the Viking engine uh, D, um, one of the four uh, engines in the core stage, um, and it had a, you know a forty four millimeter steel coolant tube and you know as this uh, boiler maker was working on it, evidently. Uh, they had trouble connecting uh, two pipes uh, as shown in the plan uh, related to this, you know, this cooling pipe. I guess there's a heritage of Boilermakers doing this where he pulls off his uh, shiny red uh, handkerchief, okay, and basically sticks it in the pipe as a warning slash reminder that there's a problem. Uh, this was, you know, he was encountering this problem on a Friday. He, you know, knew that he was going to come back on Monday and try to fix it and finish things, but, you know... He, he, you know, put this bright, shiny red cloth in there to make it very clear to himself as well as his supervisor that there was an issue. Well, this uh, Boilermaker falls ill over the weekend, and a colleague replaces him on Monday. And for whatever reason, that colleague does not see the red cloth and is able to connect the pipes without incident. They just nice and easy. So there was something going on there. And as a result, Lord. you now have this cooling <laughs> pipe <laughs> with a red cloth in there. And remember, cooling pi- pipes are meant to cool engines. And so <laughs> um <laughs> now uh that 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 was that that's ultimately the issue here, right? But there's there's a bit more context to it as well before the uh talk before I talk about the actual launch. So now this is Ariane 4 
which had, you know, uh, four uh, of these, uh, you know, liquid uh, Viking engines in their core. But you could also add, you know, uh, different combinations of solid and liquid uh, strap-on boosters, okay? And the uh, 44L configuration is the most powerful one that Ariane 4 had. And uh, you could put uh, 4.79 tons to uh, uh, geostationary transfer orbit. This one consists of the four liquids in the core, as well as the four strap-on liquids, right? Now, this, again, was all happening with that L407. But as I mentioned, they swapped the cores uh, between these. So long story short is our, our RAG engine, the Viking engine D, is now in a configuration that makes it one of eight engines. So it's one of the four in the core, but now there's four strap-on engines. And so rather than it was originally being built for a different Ariane configuration uh, called the uh, the 4.0, I'm assuming, rather than 40. But ultimately, it's the vanilla one without any strap-ons. So if it was only launching in that configuration like it was supposed to originally, then the Spot 2 flight, right, the one that was taking that payload along with some others to orbit, would have had a real serious problem because now you have a rag clogging 25% of your engines rather than, you know, one-eighth of them. And so uh, ultimately, um, the, 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 the core... Uh, uh, in LL408, which now has good engines in there, <laughs> basically takes uh, Ariane, uh, you know, flight 35 into orbit. Uh, spot 2 gets in there just fine. And uh, whoever, you know, was in charge of that satellite, I'm sure definitely uh, was happy that they <laughs> got bumped up to January. Not only were the folks flying Spot happy, but the folks flying all of the other spacecraft because there were a bunch of different spacecraft there was that's true yeah 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 and so uh so that's where we are right now we've got this viking engine d it's one of eight engines on you know this uh ariane 4 and on february uh 22nd they're getting ready to launch it okay so now the idea right is these strap-ons will burn 144 seconds and then be shed 10 seconds later and then you have another minute of the uh core uh l220 uh uh, firing, uh, and then ultimately, you know, the, the whole first stage is done. So they launch. Uh, there is some uh, footage of this you can check out. Uh, it's, uh, you know, 1990s, you know, quality. But um, <laughs> you can definitely see something pretty dramatic happen early on. By T plus six seconds, the uh, our, our good old uh, red cloth engine, <laughs> the Viking D, uh, quickly overheats and its pressure drops uh by 50%. Uh, so normally it's supposed to stick at uh, 58 bars, but had dropped um, to half of that by uh, T plus eight seconds. Now, uh, David, as our language expert, I'll say, uh, mm -hmm. I, I, I had to, I found this article in French and I, I want to give the the actual quote in French, so any francophone listeners will be able to, you know, translate it themselves. But then I'll also give you the Google translation afterwards, uh, which might lose a little nuance. I'm not sure, but uh, yeah, would you mind reading that? David? Oh yeah, so the the quote is "le jet du moteur a lèche la tour, c'est foutu." So it's like you know the jet from the motor, or I guess in this case it means the exhaust uh, from the motor licked the tower. It's screwed, or even worse. <laughs> I mean, I would say "futu" means a little bit more than screwed, but you know, right? You I was going to say it, it starts with uh, uh, the letter "f" "futu" and was translated as "screwed." So I guess you know we can draw our own conclusions about yeah. how it might be more naturally translated. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, some of the the flame from one of the engines, as you know, this vehicle is trying to <laughs> correct itself, um, definitely uh, licked the tower. And uh, in fact, the the whole vehicle only cleared the tower by about two meters. So there oh, wow. was a close call there. Um, the rocket, right, you know, is trying to correct itself because now, you know, one of its engines is, you know, firing, you know, has lost uh, a lot of thrust uh, or, and eventually the power, you know, um, I don't know if it cut out entirely um, or at what point it did. But uh, ultimately, um, the other engines are gimbling uh, to try to, you know, correct things. And by T plus 90, they are. Uh, gimbling to the max, uh, trying to right the vehicle, but already its trajectory is screwed, so uh, it's not going to be a good uh, 
uh, uh, orbital insertion one way or another, but ultimately by T, roughly T plus 100, I've, I've seen it quoted a few different ways, it might be 110 seconds or somewhere around there, uh, but ultimately the rocket, uh, you know, is now moving in an aerodynamically unsafe fashion and breaks apart and explodes at uh, 9 kilometers altitude and 12 and a half kilometers downrange. And so this was a boom, all right. And uh, of course, I guess I hadn't explicitly said it, right? The reference of a potato in the tailpipe is a reference to this red cloth uh, in the cooling pipe and ultimately mm -hmm. leading to the, the demise of this uh, rocket as well as the uh, two major payloads on there, the uh, the Superbird B and the other payload, which I'll talk about uh, in a little bit. But um, that's uh, about, I think, half a billion dollars uh, worth of stuff. <laughs> I just don't understand how that other guy couldn't have seen the red cloth. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, it's a red cloth. Like, how do you? I guess it wasn't hanging. It, it was not hanging from the pipe, but it was like completely inside of it. So I guess that's maybe why. That must. And have I been don't it. know the diameter of it, but you know, it just seems like you would put it in a way that it was, that was a little bit more conspicuous. It, right. it almost seems to me like he probably tucked it in so it was hanging out, and somebody came by and went, "Oh, that looks like that's going to fall out of there. I better tuck that in." I know. I was and kind then, of thinking that too. <laughs> like, who, who knows? <laughs> yeah, it, it evaded all their checks, you know, uh, further downstream as well, and so you managed to have this little cloth go to nine kilometers altitude. <laughs> I like Styes should have said uh, removed before flight. And it's funny yeah. that you say that because they did actually come up with a solution that's uh, uh, not not that different from that. So after the explosion. There's a, sorry, there's a subreddit called um, useless red circle, uh, which is just photos <laughs> Like screen caps of people posting things on social media, like highlighting something in a photo that's like, like you might highlight something subtle that's funny in a photo, but it's like the most obvious thing and they put a big red circle around it. Uh -huh. uh, that video has got a useless green circle, <laughs> useless green arrow <laughs> pointing, pointing to the rocket exhaust and then circling the rocket exhaust impinging on the top of the launch tower. Yeah. <laughs> we can all see that that should have happened there. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. Well, a little hard to miss. <laughs> um, so, so how, what, what caused this thing to explode, right? Like, I'm from, from mm. the, I don't know much about this launch, but the way that you're talking, it's, it's pretty clear that they weren't like, okay, let's let this thing get far away from our expensive launch pad and then we'll terminate the launch. Like it, it, it exploded on its own, I guess. I think what happened is when it started to aero that, when it started to break up, I think it was the aerodynamics ripping it apart. And then that basically triggered an explosion with all the oh, you know, fuel it, it and oxygen lost on. control. Yes, yeah. Sorry, that yeah, that wasn't clear. So it was that's why that T plus ninety was you know when it was gibbling to the max, it was it couldn't tr correct anymore, and it was still going even more off trajectory. And then that got it ten seconds later to the point where it broke apart and then exploded. Um, the first two stages were. Uh, uh, nitrogen tetroxide and udmh and then the upper the third stage was a uh, hydrolox so um what happened after the explosion well 350 pieces of debris were recovered while they wanted to you know basically do the post-mortem and figure out what went wrong um and uh it was a uh, very painstaking and difficult work right this is a launch from Kourou being an Ariane launch and so a lot of uh the debris fell into mangrove swamps which might not be the easiest thing to uh navigate but um as far as the postmortem went uh or the I guess um autopsy uh the red cloth was still found in the pipe um it survived the explosion and the uh the landing it's <laughs> you know uh, the debris landing and so at that point it kind of figured out uh yeah, they, that's a clue. They, they traced. Yeah, that's a clue, right? They they were able to trace exactly uh, what had gone wrong after you know presumably speaking with that worker, um, <laughs> and so yeah, and and Ariane Sp uh, Spas workers uh, afterwards uh, said that they had had tattooed all cloths uh, which needed to be accounted for um, from that era. And so, yep. does tattooing the cloths mean like embroidering in serial numbers, and so you have to get one through ten? Yes, exactly. And and if there was a cloth, uh, yeah, if there was a cloth that wasn't accounted for. Or they would basically halt operate, you know, halt things until they actually found it. So, so this was bad, right? But it could have been worse. <laughs> now, if, uh, as I alluded to before, right, this was just uh, the Viking D, the blocked engine, was just one of uh, eight because um, it was in the 4 L uh, configuration with the four liquid strap-ons. But if it had flown in the four zero configuration, uh, with that tight of clearance, when you still had seven functioning uh, engines, uh, if it had flown in this 4-0 configuration, it probably would have hit uh, and destroyed the tower. 
And um, right, having uh, you know the first two stages with uh, nitrogen tetroxide mm. um, on board mm. means that you're going to have a nice uh, BFRC, a big effing red cloud, um, which you know uh, happening right at the tower. Right, that's that's definitely going to contaminate that area big time. In addition to just destroying the equipment, and so um, <laughs> I do like the the. the the chat discussion that's happening in in our discord about uh since the cloth survived you know did somebody frame it <laughs> it's been uh and many days uh since we left a cloth <laughs> blocking the tube <laughs> in a rocket so um and then here's here's even more surreal uh madness that happened here now the second satellite right so i i talked about the superbird b uh, i didn't talk about the second payload so right this was going to geostationary ultimately right and so uh the second one uh bs2x was a you know a japanese communication satellite they had a backup okay and so they lost this one because of the blocked uh, red cloth so this backup launches the next year 1991 on an atlas centaur that also explodes and they go back to track why that rocket exploded. And I can imagine this being its own, uh, you know, this week is spaceflight history. So I won't go into too much detail, but ultimately the culprit were small, um, uh, plastic scouring pads that left enough particulate matter to block the turbo pump. And so both of those satellites, the original and the backup, were cursed enough to be on rockets that exploded due to really kind of silly <laughs> uh, errors. And so, the, the, again, this... Yeah. this this uh this link to the space review that article is just he he kind of ref keeps referring to like kitchen equipment and <laughs> things like that um and so it's just like it's just surreal small things being left inside pipes yeah. is just never good and it happened twice like what are the odds uh <laughs> that's yeah awesome. and so i i mean they're they're uh the, i will read i could read one line in this um you know story uh from the space review article here's the quote um Here's a quote. Uh, by this point in the story, so this is after we've learned about the uh, the the BS2X's uh, twin also being destroyed. Um, by this point in the story, one is left wondering the Japanese, wondering whether the Japanese should have handled their satellites launches to housekeepers rather than engineers. Um, <laughs> oh the boy! The engineers <laughs> messing around with uh, scrubbing pads and handkerchiefs, you know. <laughs> housekeepers know how to clean up. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and so, in any event, that is your uh, this week in spaceflight history. That was an interesting one. Oh, it's wild. So, uh, David, next week is the 23rd of February through the 1st of March. Uh, do you have a clue for us? Yes, the clue for that is next week in 2002. European cars may be small, dot, dot, dot. If you think you know what that clue is in reference to, give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF and good luck. Good luck, everybody. All right, so moving on to upcoming spaceflight events now. Uh, we got five different things. Some of them launches, some of them not. So what's the first thing then? <laughs> so first up, a progress. This is progress 77. It will have already launched by the time the show comes out, but you can still catch the rendezvous and docking. That's going to happen uh, on Wednesday. The coverage on NASA spaceflight begins at 12.30 a.m. Eastern, and the docking is scheduled for uh, 1.20 a.m. Eastern. And also on uh, Wednesday, February 17th, is a Falcon 9 Starlink launch. And so uh, this is... Uh you know, Starlink version 1.0-L17. Uh, uh, this is a uh, long-delayed one. It's going to be another uh, batch of 60 satellites. Uh, should be the 20th um, and uh, batch that's being sent. And it's been delayed eight times. Uh, so uh, keep an eye out for that at, again on the 17th uh, at 0555 UTC or uh, 1255 AM uh, on the uh, East Coast. Uh, and it'll be uh, launching from... Uh, uh, launch complex 39A at Kennedy. And then after that, we have the Mars Perseverance landing. So make sure to set your alarms for that, whatever, set, uh, set, set a reminder. Um, that's going to be mm -hmm. something worth watching. The coverage of that is set to begin at 2.15 p.m. And, and that's Eastern time. And the landing, however, is approximately at 3.55 p.m. So there'll be, you know, about like an hour and a half of coverage. And I'm sure they'll have different people on. Like if you watch like NASA TV, that's how it works. But I think a lot of people will actually be watching this on youtube or streaming it in some way or another so mm. but if you want to watch it on nasa tv you can do that too that's always well you know. well the the youtube stream is is the nasa tv YouTube right. stream? But it's I, usually the best place but you mean that there are going to be other streamers covering it as well yeah, yeah. which i mean Certainly. i tend to gravitate towards yeah, jake robbins is going to do it uh, oh is he okay else. that's that'll have to be the one that i watch uh I, and yeah he has some good guests 
planned, I believe. But yeah, NASA, if you, if you're just desperate for content, uh, NASA TV is going to pretty much all day be doing, um, like mm -hmm. student content, which is pretty cool. And then of course, uh, post landing coverage will be going on forever and ever. Um, but the, the <laughs> next, uh, the next more different event, um, is the launch of Cygnus CRS 15. This one is called SS Catherine Johnson, which is pretty neat. And, uh, they're, they're calling this, uh, yeah, CRS2 NG15 because it's this, I think the CRS2 indicates that it's a second CRS contract. Um, that's flying on an Antares, uh, 230 plus. Yeah. I'm going to say 230 plus, you know, uh, cargo flight to the ISS, um, beautiful little, uh, futuristic stripped down looking spacecraft, not uh futuristic and shiny like dragon. Um, <laughs> that launch is going to be happening, uh, again, Saturday at 1736 hours UTC. And finally, uh, a few days after that launch, it will finally reach the space station. <laughs> and so that will happen on, uh, Monday, uh, the 22nd. And so coverage of the rendezvous and capture will begin at 3 a.m. on NASA TV with the capture scheduled at uh, 4.40 a.m., uh, those times both in Eastern Standard. All right, so those are your upcoming spaceflight events. So let's deal with the show then, and we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can join our Discord for free during social distancing. Check our Twitter or Reddit for links. We're Orbital Podcast on both. And you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, that's it. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.